0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at Meta.com slash
1: Metaverse Impact. On a cold Christmas Eve in the year 1993, drivers in midtown Manhattan who were crawling along the FDR Drive saw a strange sight in the East River. An illuminated old castle, seeming to rise from out of the water itself, like an apparition from a fairy tale. Bathed in floodlight, the haunting ruins stood in stone-cold grey, shadows of large, vacated rooms behind its cathedral-like windows, a blanket of ivy imbuing it with a green glow. This deteriorating building sat surrounded in total darkness on the southern end of the narrow island separating Manhattan from Queens, a place once synonymous with human suffering. In fact, within this historic crumbling structure, hundreds had died of one of the 19th century's most terrible diseases. But it was also a place where thousands had trained to care for those with the greatest need. Perhaps on that night, somebody on the FDR drive thought to themselves, how is this dilapidated old ruin still standing at all? The Bowery Boys episode 389, The Ruins of Roosevelt Island. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, just alone on the show this week and exploring the story of a very unusual New York landmark located on Roosevelt Island, that narrow two-mile island situated in the East River between Manhattan and Queens. Now, we recorded an entire show on the history of Roosevelt Island back from 2009, but the place has changed so greatly since then Unrecognizable, really, from how we described it on that original show, especially the southern end of the island. The campus of Cornell Tech now makes the island home, situated within several high-tech, energy-efficient buildings, which bring an aura of futurism to this historic place. And at the very southern tip sits the Franklin D. Roosevelt Four Freedoms State Park, a tranquil triangular memorial to the 32nd President of the United States. But sitting between the campus and the FDR memorial is this strange building, greatly deteriorated, today known as the Renwick Ruin, named for the building's architect James Renwick, Jr., In a city where every inch of available real estate is highly valued, it really is extraordinary that a building in such advanced state of decline somehow remains standing, evoking not a sense of urban decay, but a hint of a classical ruin transported from the old world. Depending on your frame of reference, the ruins evoke either the romance of English poetry ancient rubble as described by Lord Byron, or the trappings of a 1930s horror film. These are the ruins not of an ancient castle, but a hospital, which first opened in 1856. Now, there are many older buildings in much better condition in New York. In fact, there's another one on Roosevelt Island, in fact. And no one is suggesting that we actually rebuild this hospital. No, it is now and forevermore a ruin, a haunting monument of architectural drama and a memorial to the island's dark history. But as the title of this show suggests, there were once many ruins on the island and each has experienced a very different fate at this place once more notoriously known as Blackwell's Island. In 1828, Richard Johnson violently shot a boarding housekeeper and his former lover named Ursula Newman. A couple months later, in the neighborhood of Five Points, a woman named Catherine Cashier stabbed and killed another woman during a drunken card game. Two separate violent crimes. Both perpetrators accused and convicted of murder and slated to be executed on the very same day, May 7, 1829, on the northern end of Blackwell's Island. On that morning, the pair were taken from their Manhattan captivity to the shores of Blackwell, the river filled with vessels of all sorts, hoping to get a view of the grisly execution. Author Stacy Horn continues the story. Catherine, they said, died instantly. But Richard Johnson went into violent convulsions that lasted four or five minutes. Authorities left them hanging for 45 minutes, as was customary. Then they lowered the two young people into their coffins and took them away. We can mark the start of the island's dark trajectory into human suffering to this moment in its history. The island was once quiet and even pastoral. By the colonial era, the entire island belonged to the English merchant Robert Blackwell. His descendants would remain there well into the 1820s. The home of Jacob Blackwell, the great-grandson of Robert, was built in 1796 and remains standing to this day. But don't confuse that longevity with a deep ancestral love of the place— The Blackwells were prominent members of New York society, and at various points, members of the family over the generations attempted to sell the entire island, rich with fruit orchards, grazing land, and most notably, a stone quarry. But they were unsuccessful. After all, at the start of the 19th century, there was plenty of much more accessible land to develop in the region. In 1811, New York released its Commissioner's Plan, which carved up the island of Manhattan into city blocks, and ensuring that New York's great legacy would be as an empire of real estate. Colonial-era New York had been confined to the streets of lower Manhattan, so more or less below Canal Street, and all of its institutions were situated close to one another, churches and police stations and city hall, of course, but also the more undesirable necessities of urban life. When the sparkly new city hall building opened in 1812, it sat next to the almshouse and a city prison named Bridewell. These facilities kept and maintained the poor, destitute, criminal, elderly, sick, and mentally ill. In these days, the needs of the poor and the criminal were often combined. There was also an aging state prison named Newgate, located in the area of today's West Village Waterfront. So, as the city grew larger and richer, it made little sense to keep these unpleasant institutions so close to fashionable districts for instance, the residents of Greenwich Village near the Newgate Prison were frequently beholden to sites of jailbreaks and prison riots. And with the city's population growth, these institutions needed to be larger and more comprehensive anyway. But it didn't seem wise to just you know, move them up the island of Manhattan onto potentially lucrative plots of land. City leaders then turned to Blackwell's Island – For what had been a detriment, its isolation, accessible only by a ferry. Well, that turned into an asset. In 1828, from the porch of the Blackwell House, an agreement was made to sell the entire island to the city of New York for a little over $32,000. Adjusted for inflation, the selling price was less than a million dollars today. It would become known as the City of Asylums work on the Blackwell's Island Penitentiary was well underway when Richard Johnson and Catherine Cashier were executed on the island in the spring of 1829. The penitentiary was completed three years later, and its architecture set the tone for the island's medieval style. Original plans had even included a moat. Its original 240 cells were almost immediately filled, and hundreds more would be constructed over the years. In fact, the island lent itself to building expansion thanks to its rich resources of building stone. According to the New York Evening Post in 1829, The quarries of stone on Blackwell's island are of incalculable value lying near the surface and easily separated into fragments for convenient size and shape. And of course, the city now had a replenishing supply of labor, the inmates of the Blackwells Island Penitentiary. With great arrivals of immigrants in the 1830s, many poor and destitute from Ireland and other European countries, the city's meager social programs were immediately overburdened. In particular, Bellevue Hospital and its many facilities for the poor, the diseased, and the criminal would soon be alleviated with new facilities here on Blackwell's Island. As thousands more kept arriving to America with each passing year, it seemed more and more people were sent to Blackwell's. By 1872, there would be 11 institutions on the island containing tens of thousands of people Now, this is not to say that little care was made in the formation of these institutions. Civic leaders often congratulated themselves for funding and creating such social benefits. And these structures were often built with great flair and ornamentation. In 1839, the New York City Lunatic Asylum opened on the northern end of Blackwell's Island, designed by Alexander Jackson Davis, already renowned in America for the architecture of fine residences and austere state capitol buildings. The plan for the asylum was an octagonal structure with two long wings extending outward. It also wore feudal castle-like dressing, and its walls were also constructed using the island's exceptional quarries of gray stone. The island's restful character, which it would swiftly lose within the decade, was originally thought to help the troubled inmates of the asylum. And the facility was certainly better than the previous method of just throwing an individual into a prison or an almshouse. But the complexities of mental illness were far from being understood in the early 19th century, and treatments were as medieval as the architecture. When visiting writer Charles Dickens passed through the asylum in 1839, he was filled with, quote, "...feelings of deep disgust and measureless contempt. I saw nothing of that salutary system which had impressed me so favorably elsewhere. And everything had a lounging, listless madhouse air." the penitentiary and the mental institution were soon joined by other facilities like the 1848 Almshouse for the elderly and the infirm. Next to that was the workhouse, which opened in 1852. Those who were interred here were either guilty of a minor crime or those who were simply known as the unworthy poor. Men who did not have jobs or families, men who were alcoholics or or drug users who, according to the city, had no productive use. Criminally lazy was the phrase. Women arrested for prostitution, or really any behavior not befitting a proper woman, were also sent to the workhouse. Many would spend their lives going from one building to the next. By the 1870s, over 30,000 people were being sent to the workhouse each year. And then there were the hospitals, mostly for the poor, naturally. People with means were often treated at home or away at rural institutions. The first hospital at Blackwell's was associated with the penitentiary. In the beginning, patients were even forced to wear the prisoners' pinstripe uniforms. Attached to the almshouse was the so-called hospital for the incurables, for poor terminally ill patients. These facilities were in network to a number of places throughout New York and Brooklyn, fending off one health crisis after another, in a period when so little was known. Germ theory and the importance of cleanliness and sterility were not widespread ideas. Throughout the 19th century, New Yorkers continued to battle epidemics. Yellow fever and cholera and typhus and tuberculosis All of these, at some point, made their way to New York and to Blackwell's Island. And one long-time affliction continued to vex the city—smallpox. The disease, known as the speckled monster, had long held its grip on New York from the very start. Blackwell's Island did have an early pavilion for treating smallpox patients— A miserable wooden shanty upon the waterfront, so ramshackle and inhumane that a violent storm nearly washed it into the river. Sickly patients gazed out at a daily stack of wooden coffins accumulating upon the waterfront. From the New York Daily Herald, 1848, quote, The patients suffering under this loathsome and painful disease are crowded in wretched apartments of insufficient dimensions, destitute of proper ventilation, and without means for the separation that ought to be provided for diversities of sex and of moral character or conduct. There is great danger that a hotbed of contagion may be thus perpetrated to the serious hazard of all who dwell on the island." The disease, easily spread, struck young and old, rich and poor. Pressure mounted, and finally, in 1854, work began on a permanent smallpox hospital, the first of its kind in the United States, devoted strictly to the care of smallpox patients. As with the lunatic asylum with its octagon, the project was very high profile and needed to look striking and elegant to distract from its grim and serious purposes. And so the city turned to the architect James Renwick Jr., responsible for some of the most famous buildings in pre-Civil War America, including New York's Grace Church and the Smithsonian Institute building in Washington, D.C., known as the Castle. Renwick was the leading purveyor of Gothic Revival-style architecture paying tribute to the grandeur of medieval Europe mixed with the ideals of Romanticism. The hospital was constructed in the same gray stone as the other buildings and was also built by the penitentiary's inmates. According to a 2005 Community Health article, Renwick's gothic revival design for the smallpox hospital included a grand entrance portico Thick walls, spires, and high-arched triangular windows. A crenellated roofline gave the building a castle-like appearance. Described as a stunning home for the diseased and outcasts, Renwick's design offered an imposing disguise to the deadly disease that it was built to contain. The hospital opened to great acclaim in 1856. But by then, James Renwick was off working on a more prominent structure, the grand new Catholic cathedral situated on Fifth Avenue, St. Patrick's Cathedral. But Renwick was not through with Blackwell's Island. When the penitentiary hospital burnt down just two years later, Renwick returned to design a much grander hospital, also in Greystone. It would eventually be known as City Hospital. In 1872, Renwick also designed a lighthouse for the island's northern end to prevent ships from crashing into the banks near the asylum. The lighthouse still stands there today. On a cold December day in 1856, a city procession ferried to Blackwell's Island and marched to the nearly completed Smallpox hospital. By law, any New Yorker who had contracted smallpox was sent here. However, for the wealthy, rooms could be rented on the hospital's top floor. No matter your social status or how well-connected you were, whether you were an immigrant from the Lower East Side or a Fifth Avenue socialite, your stay at the smallpox hospital was brief. You either recovered quickly And perhaps you were even blessed not to be permanently scarred by the disease's disfiguring blemishes, or else you succumbed to join those at the waterfront awaiting your final voyage to the potter's field. When you look into the windows of the Renwick ruin today, what looks back at you? The buildings' remains that we see on the island today hide a lot of horror stories, But a sudden shift in purpose will turn Renwick's forlorn palace into a landmark of American health. The fate of Renwick's hospital after this.
2: The New York Historical Society Produces For the Ages, a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost
1: historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including
2: presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Listen to Susan Eisenhower talk about her grandfather's leadership skills during war and as president in How Ike Led. How did a pacifist Mennonite wind up at West Point? Why was Eisenhower recruited by both the Democratic and Republican parties after World War II? Why did he choose the Republicans, and how did he change his party? David Reynolds gives you a complete picture of our 16th president in Abraham Lincoln in his times.
1: You'll hear a discussion of how Lincoln learned to be good at politics, how much his wife Mary contributed to his success, and what three things propelled him to the
2: presidency. Join a fascinating conversation with Joseph Ellis about the American Revolution in The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773-1783. What was the cause? When did people begin talking about the American Revolution? That's For
1: the Ages from the New York Historical Society, available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. BP added more than
0: $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy,
2: Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness.
0: He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash impact.
2: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America... Tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams.
1: Smallpox was not a significant cause of death for New Yorkers in the 1870s. In fact, many more died of diseases like diphtheria and meningitis. A smallpox epidemic in 1871 did cause 805 reported deaths. Now, out of a population of almost 1.5 million people, perhaps that doesn't seem like much. But victims feared not just the disease, but the treatment many of the afflicted, waiting hours for transport to the hospital from the receiving depot in Manhattan, and looking out at the island's many dour institutions with belching black smoke from smokestacks filling the sky above it, your greater fear might have been, will I survive Blackwell's Island? From the New York Times, January 21st, 1871. From the time a patient enters the hospital until he or she leaves it cured or dead, neither friend, relative, nor family physician holds the slightest intercourse with the patient, save by letters or through runners employed to carry messages from the charity dock to the hospital. Neither matron nor physician reside in the hospital so that the patients are day and night under the control of a set of semi-reformed drunkards and women of questionable character. The wages paid to the attendants are too pitiful to attract responsible persons to fill the positions of nurse or attendant. The hospital is overcrowded. The wards are so constructed as to render ventilation absolutely dangerous to the lives of those who may be confined to their beds. The physicians themselves attribute many of the deaths to affections of the chest and lungs, rather than smallpox directly. Not infrequently, seven or eight patients are thrust into one room containing but four beds. How they sleep is left to conjecture unquote. In essence, there was little treatment for people with smallpox. You essentially just waited it out. But a dreaded scenario even awaited those who survived the disease because leaving Blackwell's Island was also hell. Quote, the patients who pass hours waiting ready for departure for the boat to arrive, that carries both the living and the dead. The released take their meals in the infected wards, linger until the last moment at the bedside of some remaining friend, or may tarry with the uncoffined dead in the foul atmosphere of the dead house until the signal is given when they hastily board the pest boat that is to carry them to their homes, only unwittingly to diffuse the poisonous atoms that cling to their garments among friends and foes alike filling again to repletion the already crowded abode of the pestilence. No class of society is exempt from the invasion of the disease. In the clothing of domestics, the affluent residents of the mansion may contract the dreaded malady as well as the lowly occupant of the tenement house." Unquote. Now, setting aside the 19th century's primitive understanding of medical treatment, mental health, and human psychology, setting that aside, why were conditions so bad on Blackwell's Island? Well, if regular politics and law enforcement in New York were pervasively corrupt at this time, imagine how corrupt the system was on Blackwell's Island, with inept political appointees on all levels, operating with little desire to improve the system. And as it turns out, accepting that endless supply of prison labor, putting a bunch of social institutions in one place didn't actually benefit any of them. In the long run, for most New Yorkers, they were out of sight and out of mind. Until Nellie Bly. Now, there had been investigative journalists looking into Blackwell's Island for decades. In fact, the clip that I read previously from the New York Times is one example of that. But Nellie Bly, working for Joseph Pulitzer's New York World in the year 1887 took her investigation into the Blackwells Island Lunatic Asylum one step further. She embedded there for ten days. Bly exposed the world to the sinister treatment of the mentally ill and the wretched conditions of the island's institutions. Today, you can find a monument to the life of Nellie Bly, located appropriately near the Roosevelt Island Lighthouse near the site of the old asylum. Now, for more information, head back to the Bowery Boys episode 194 to relive her entire story. Her book, Ten Days in a Madhouse, was published in 1887, but by that time, much had changed down at the old smallpox hospital. The urgency of other types of epidemics meant that Renwick's hospital soon saw patients suffering a wide variety of ills. In 1875, it then got a new name, Riverside Hospital. Political reformers, wishing to reduce Tammany Hall's citywide stranglehold of corruption, reorganized the city's Department of Charities and asked the Sisters of Charity of St. Vincent's Hospital to oversee the facility. Later still, the city decided to consolidate all its various quarantine hospitals in an even more remote destination further north in the East River, a place called North Brother Island, inhabited only by a lighthouse keeper and his wife. Riverside Hospital moved to North Brother Island in 1885. Now to pick up the rest of that story, check out my episode from last year, that's 366, North Brother Island, New York's forgotten place. But Renwick's castle did not go vacant for long. The influence of Florence Nightingale and the demand for capable nurses to treat the wounded during the Civil War inspired a series of prominent new nursing schools in the United States, including, in 1873, the New York Training School at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan, directly operating on Nightingale's core principles. Two years later, a nursing school also opened at City Hospital, the Renwick Design Building right next to the former smallpox facility. Its first graduating class in 1877 included 18 students, all women. By 1886, the school began training men. And then to accommodate the mixed classes then, the school expanded into the old smallpox hospital. At the start of the new century, two additional wings, which were very much in the style of Renwick, were added to the building for more classrooms and dormitory space. And that wasn't the only positive change which arrived here to the southern end of Blackwell's Island. In 1892, the Strecker Memorial Laboratory opened just nearby, the first laboratory in the country devoted exclusively to pathological and bacteriological research. That's right, modern medical practices have arrived. Of course, New Yorkers would have paid attention to a more prominent example of modernity, coming to Blackwell's Island, or over Blackwell's Island, I should say, the Queensboro Bridge, which opened in 1909, stretching over the island to bridge Manhattan and Queens. For decades, trolley passengers could gain access to Blackwell's Island via an elevator located in the middle of the bridge. After all, with most contagious diseases now banished to that other island, Blackwells became slightly more open to the public. The patients at the mental asylum were also gone by this point. The octagon and its old passages were now the home of Metropolitan Hospital. Even here in the 20th century, the entire island had a reputation so ensnarled in corruption, incompetence, and, let's face it, the horrible realities of human suffering that there was just simply no reforming it. New York's Commissioner of Public Welfare during the 1920s, a man named Bird S. Kohler, declared, quote, Blackwell's Island is the most abused island there is. We are trying to change the name to Welfare Island. By the spring, the name was official. Now, by no means a welcoming name, at least Welfare Island signaled a different kind of a mindset. As Kohler said, quote, the stigma and prejudice attached to the name Blackwells had a very harmful effect in obtaining necessary hospital help for the city institutions here. But what Kohler could not have imagined in the 1920s was that this so-called city of asylums would look radically different in just a few decades. In 1932, A jail over at Rikers Island opened, and the penitentiary's prisoners were transferred there. The Almshouse, you know, the very concept identified more with Charles Dickens stories than with useful care. Well, that was transformed into a modern hospital in 1952, the Byrd S. Kohler Hospital, named for the former commissioner who gave Welfare Island its name. Incidentally, Kohler is is still there today. It's part of the New York City health and hospital system. Then, Metropolitan Hospital, located in that old mental asylum, well, they too left the island. An automobile bridge finally connecting the island to Queens was completed in 1955, and then was seemingly used to transfer the staff and patients of Old City Hospital over to a new facility in Elmhurst, Queens. Okay, so to recap here, by 1957, the smallpox hospital, which had the nursing school in it, and the city hospital building, both designed by James Renwick, by 1957, they were vacant. The lunatic asylum, the penitentiary, the workhouse, gone. Many of the most notorious institutions in New York City history were now dismantled, moved, or transformed into places which employed modern medical advances. Yet many of these old buildings remained standing, vacant, and neglected. Along with abandoned docks and streets overgrown with foliage, it was an island of ghostly architecture. They would, over time, become ruins. Welfare Island, however, was about to go in a surprising direction. Now, into the story here steps a man with a lot of modern ideas, Mayor John Lindsay, who formed an exploratory committee charged with turning the island into an affordable, modern place to live. Bolstered by state urban development funds, architects Philip Johnson and John Burgee created what the New York Times called, quote, a futuristic one-street town whose inhabitants often forget that they are residents of New York City. Since the idea of families willingly choosing to move to this former island of asylums was itself a bit bold... So, too, was the experimental design of the neighborhood itself, with a zigzagging main street separating modern apartment buildings with 2,000 units for 5,000 residents. In 1973, Newsday declared, quote, It is an attempt to celebrate anew the potential of cities and to find an alternative to urban chaos. When people first moved in, the press referred to them as pioneers. Said one resident at the time, quote, I have taken on a lifestyle, not just an apartment. Of course, the name of the island would also have to be changed to reflect its more progressive qualities. And in January of 1973, Mayor Lindsay proposed to the city council Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Island. Appropriate, he declared, because it was in sight of the United Nations, which, quote, they did so much to create and of which New York is so justly proud, unquote. A monument to the legacy of FDR would then be placed on this southern end of the island, on a narrow patch of landfill just south of the old smallpox hospital. But that tribute to Roosevelt would not rise on the island which takes his name for over four decades. Now, with people living on the newly named Roosevelt Island, people who most likely didn't work on the island, they needed a way to get off the island. And that middle of the bridge elevator thing over there on the Queensboro wasn't going to cut it. Well, with innovation in the air, so too came transportation in the form of an aerial tramway, a lift over the East River using cable drawn passenger cabins. The tram was always meant to be temporary, while a subway station was being constructed. But that wouldn't open for many, many years. And in the spring of 1976, when the tram finally opened, New Yorkers fell in love with it. And the tram system was made permanent. So we have all this interesting change going on. You've got a new name, new neighborhood, new form of transit. But all throughout the island were these deteriorating ruins to the island's past. Okay, let me reinforce the oddness of this. Said the Daily News, quote, In the shadows of the island's new high-rise community with its model apartments stands the ruins of New York's dark, mysterious past, unquote preservationists made sure to protect the most prominent architecture and several places were made landmarks including the lighthouse the mental asylums octagon the old blackwell home the schrecker memorial laboratory all mentioned in today's show as well as the historic chapel of the good shepherd and renwick's two old contributions to the southern end of the island were also protected the Smallpox Hospital, and City Hospital, although both were in a severe state of deterioration. By the late 1980s, most New Yorkers had forgotten what the use of these old structures had even been. Their somber purposes had faded, and they lived now as something ancient and peculiar. Residents of the island could tell you a lot of stories about these places. You know, you could scoot into trellises, For instance, one of the only diners and bar on the island at this time, as far as I could remember, and you could sometimes find character actor Al Lewis, the unofficial mayor of Roosevelt Island, who was always brimming with stories. Lewis was most famous for playing Grandpa Munster on the TV sitcom The Munsters, And certainly, by the late 1980s, Grandpa Munster would have been quite at home within Renwick's ruins, now enfolded in plant life, darkness, and dust. In 1994, Meredith Monk created a site-specific dance piece here. According to the New York Times, quote, The audience will watch as performers gradually become visible in a dance of death that Ms. Monk has choreographed for actual hospital patients and members of her company who play characters that include, as she puts it, crazy doctors, unquote. Another creator who visualized the Renwick ruins in an artistic way was the fashion designer Arnold Scazzi. The acclaimed designer for Barbara Streisand, described in the New York Times as, quote, diminutive and dapper, Recognizable by his generous swoop of hair, loved his classic ornaments. He lived at One Beekman Place, a Tony address with unobstructed views of Roosevelt Island and the old Smallpox Hospital from Scagli's apartment. Arnold became entranced with the ruins. He declared, quote, "In Europe, ruins are lit, not just ignored." In 1991, on the occasion of a cocktail party in honor of Norman Mailer, Skazi paid for the ruins to be bathed in floodlights to the delight of guests, including Gay Talese, Ahmed Erdogan, and Joan Rivers. Now, this glamorous little show inspired other admirers of the landmark to band together two years later, advocating for regular illumination of the ruins. Led by Skazi and with the help of former Mayor Lindsay and actress and cabaret star Kitty Carlisle Hart, the Renwick ruins were officially lit up for the 1993 holiday season. But the other Renwick ruins, those of City Hospital, did not fare so dramatically. Despite being listed in the National Register of Historic Places, the building was in such a dire condition that no amount of reinforcement could save it. And so in 1994, just as Renwick's Smallpox Hospital was being reinvented as an ornament of Gothic drama, the remains of City Hospital were torn down. Today's South Point Park sits on the site of this forgotten historic place. The other ruins of roosevelt island have fared better over the years the lighthouse the laboratory and the blackwell's old house have all been preserved and the octagon the remains of the so-called lunatic asylum have become the lobby of a luxury apartment complex its rotunda which has seen so much over the years gracefully restored there's one final piece of the puzzle to lay down here, and in a way, Roosevelt Island has not been complete without it. In 1970, an editorial ran in the New York Times on the subject of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Quote, It is ironic that a memorial to President Roosevelt stands in a beautiful square in London, but none exist either in Washington or New York. It has long seemed to us that an ideal place for such a memorial would be on Welfare Island, which is now undergoing a total rehabilitation and could easily be renamed in his honor. This editorial essentially planted the seed for the renaming to Roosevelt Island, to be anchored by a lavish monument to the president. In 1974, the architect Lewis Kahn drafted up a monument concept, a triangular park with granite walls, clean lines, and a wide flight of steps. It would be one of his last designs. The architect died of a heart attack at Pennsylvania Station that very year. The designs were FDR for Freedom's Park in his briefcase. Posthumously, however, his plans were chosen for the project, But then the project was then delayed, this being New York in the 1970s and all. Construction belatedly started in 2010, and the park finally opened in the fall of 2012. Adjacent to the park is the Renwick Ruin, girded and fenced in, but otherwise oblivious to its new arrival. If there are any ghosts who dwell within the ruin, they've mostly kept to themselves, But something does walk through the dense foliage and wild lawn surrounding the ruin. For adjacent to the site today is an animal sanctuary for cats, ducks, and Canadian geese. And the ruin of the smallpox hospital is their home now. So will the ruins be ruins forever? Well, there is a captivating proposal on the table right now proposed by the organization Friends of the Ruin to turn the former hospital into a public health memorial honoring scientific advances and the frontline workers who fight viral and infectious diseases every day. A fascinating idea considering what we have all been through in the past couple years. I want to thank the Friends of the Ruin for their helpful website, which is full of information. Head over there. It's theruin.org. Very easy to remember. theruin.org for more information on their proposal and what you can do to get involved. And of course, you can also find more information about the island's history from the Roosevelt Island Historical Society. That's r-i-h-s dot And they even have a visitor's kiosk that you can check out right where you get off the tram. On our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, I'll have many historical images of the smallpox hospital and Blackwells slash welfare slash Roosevelt Island in general, including many images from my recent trip there last weekend. Now, for the folks over at Patreon.com, Tom and I just recorded an Aftermath episode to our Road Trip to the Hudson Valley mini series, and it has lots of little behind-the-scenes details about our trip. I think you all would be very amused by that show, so please head over and support the show by going to Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys and checking out our membership levels. Thanks to all of those who support us there. And finally... Uh, We are celebrating our 15th year of recording podcasts. That's right. The first episode of the Bowery Boys New York City History Podcast came out in June of 2007, if you can believe it. Well, believe it or not, we now have a brand new merchandise store where we are selling a bunch of stuff with our new 15th anniversary logo. I think that you all will need some of this in your life. We've got... Uh, t-shirts we've got mugs we've got water bottles we've got beer pints people beer pints okay so head on over to our store it's at pod swag so go to pod swag and look for the Barry boys and pick up some great stuff thank you very much for listening have a great new york week whether you live here or not